Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Hey, good morning. You guys got extra sleep. That was louder than it's ever, ever, ever been. Uh, I can't promise you more sleep, but you could do that again next week anyway. So, uh, yep. All right, so we are in Hebrews chapter 3. Um, I love this book. Uh, I hope that you guys have as well. I hope that it's been encouraging to your, uh, to your heart. So we'll open up the third chapter today, uh, looking at verses 1 through 6. So not a very long section today, um, but a great text. It says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts in this. Lord, teach us to place our confidence in you to be... um, not brazen or rude, but to be bold um, in you. Lord, I pray that you would um, secure us more in the beauty of what you've done, that we would rest in it, that it would be uh, the rock that that grounds us even in the middle of um, just crazy times, Lord. We pray for that. Let us see the beauty of Jesus. Amen. All right, so on August 17th or 7th of 1974, a guy, a Frenchman named Felipe, uh, I'm not really sure how to say his last name, Petit, Petit, he stretched a cable across uh, the two towers of the World Trade Center in between the buildings. He did it in Manhattan while the buildings were under construction in the middle of the night. And then at seven in the morning with crowds bustling, heading uh, to work and, and looking up into the sky, he walked back and forth across this tightrope in between uh, the buildings, multiple times in each uh, direction. Mind you, this wasn't like a sanctioned Red Bull event, right? This wasn't filmed. This didn't have a safety crew. There was no safety harness. There was no net. Just a man walking across the skyline, and if he fell, he would die. Not might. He would dead, done, over. Uh, afterwards, everyone had one simple question for him. Uh, how did you keep from falling? Uh, how did you not get paralyzed with fear? How did you control your heart rate from skyrocketing? Ultimately, how did you not die, man? Like, what in the world did you do? How did you do it? How did you uh, make it across? How did you hold on? And his answer was uh, quite simple as well. He says, you keep your eyes focused on the destination and never, ever, ever look down. That was it. He didn't talk about feet placement, shoe size, wind direction, balance, coordination of the human body. He didn't talk about how long the pole was and and what that does to balancing and the effects. He didn't talk about any of that at all. Just keep your eyes focused. Don't look away. Don't look down. Look straight. What the author tells us in this text is that Christianity works the same way. 
If we want to keep from falling on our face, if we want to keep from uh, having a great fall in our faith, we have to keep our eyes focused and not look away. Not to re-earn something that we've been given, but to continue beholding what we have. Uh, The author puts it this way. He says, consider Jesus. I love the ESV. I don't love the way they rendered this. It's probably close to the original language, but it doesn't really land on on the way uh, it needs to for us. The NIV does a little bit better a job. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. This is how you make it to the end. Don't look down. Don't look away. uh, Don't get distracted even in the chaos. There's an important rule. Lock your gaze on Christ. Consider him Look at him, behold at him, stare at him, contemplate him, think about him always. In the Gospels in Matthew 14, we actually get kind of a story from Peter that serves as kind of a living example of this embodiment of, of, of look and behold uh, Jesus. For um, some reason, this text maybe is forgotten about quite often. Maybe it's because we're quite embarrassed of some things in the faith. Like, I don't know if I want people to know that I believe that Jesus walked on uh, the water, I, I don't know. But in, in this story, the disciples get on a boat after feeding the 5,000 people. They've been doing ministry. They're tired, long day, fed 5,000 people. They get on a boat and they sail away and Jesus goes into the mountains to pray after a couple hard days. He just found out John the Baptist had died. He just fed the people, done the ministry. Jesus went off to go and pray. So the disciples sail off. They don't get very far and they hit a huge storm with tailwinds. The text says in the fourth hour or watch of the night, they're still not even close. Uh, They're exhausted. Uh, The storm is beating them. Uh, They are scared, and they look out in the middle of their fear and their exhaustion. I don't know about you, but my mind doesn't always work right when I'm super tired. So they're super tired, super stressed, um, exhausted from the work, and they look out, and they see a man walking on the water. Wait, what? Uh, Even after all that they had been through with Jesus, he just fed 5,000 people. Uh, Some of them were terrified and yelled, it's a ghost. Like, guys, really? And Jesus says to them, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. And Peter somehow does this interesting transition from uh, fear to bravery. And he yells out, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Right? From, who is that? What is that? I'm so tired. Hey, I want to come. And Jesus does, calls him out. Peter begins walking on the water to him. And I always try and imagine what that step would be like for Peter. Did he just not think and, and jump? I don't know about you guys before scary things. I can't think about it. I just got to go, like, I got to do it. Is that what he did? Did he just jump? Or did he, like ice, did he put his toe out and try and figure out, like, hey, does this work? Either way, he, he begins walking across uh, the water. He's walking to Jesus. In biblical times, a storm is a metaphor for chaos, for danger, for the trials in a broken world. It's the things that hurt and that are difficult and hard. So uh, Jesus, the one greater than our trials, invited Peter to walk over the top of the trials and the storms. Come out and look at me. Ignore the things underneath of you. Come, come to me. Come to me. While Peter's eyes are fixed on Jesus, he stays above the water. And the text, what I found is interesting, it says he actually made it to him. It's not like he got three feet out and was like, I can't do it. He, he got all the way to Jesus. And in the middle of being all the way over there, he, he starts having fear set in. He begins to have his attention drawn elsewhere, and he begins to see the waves and the, the wind and make note of how far they're out, and he can't see uh, much, and, and he begins to sink. The storm, the chaos, the trial, begin to swallow him up as he sinks underneath the water. 
and he begs for Jesus to save him. Immediately he does. He grabs him, pulls him out. This text is a parable that conveys a spiritual truth to us. The same point as Hebrews 3, verse 1. It is the embodiment of holding fast. What does it look like? The only way to make it through the storm and through the trial, the only way from falling on your face and falling away from the the faith is to behold Jesus. Look at him. Fix your gaze on him. Stare at him. Let the chaos and the storms go to the side as you stare at him. To put plainly, we are not called just to follow Jesus. We're called to fight with everything we have to look at him, to put him in our view, to gaze at him, to see him, to behold him. Context is important. I've tried to keep it in front of us in this series, and we'll do it again. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Hebrews who are struggling. Uh, They had come into the faith joyfully, uh, and and now they're in their own storm, right? They're being persecuted for their faith. There's there's tension. There's oppression. Their faith is causing them uh, real issues in the world around them, so much so that they're they're kind of thinking, like, ah, should we... Should we cut ties? Should we run? Should we look over our shoulder and, and go uh, the other way? They're not thinking of turning on God altogether. They're just kind of thinking of leaving the Jesus stuff behind. Um, this mindset was maybe we'll go back to the old ways, to the old covenant, to the Old Testament. Maybe we'll start observing the sacrificial system like we used to and sacrificing animals and doing all that. Maybe we'll rely on the prophets and the priests and the, and the patriarchs like we used to. What if we just abandoned all the Jesus stuff that's causing us the issues and we just believed in God? This is the idea of going to the old covenant again. And this is why the author in the text talks about Moses. You may be wondering, like, what's, what's the deal? Like, I, I can't relate. Well, Moses was the patriarch. Historically, he was looked at as one of the heroes, one of the guides, the bringer of the faith to the people. So if the Hebrews were thinking about leaving Jesus simultaneously, if they weren't leaving God, they would be picking back up their faith in Moses. He'll be our guide. We'll stare at him. We'll look at him. I want us to realize, though, our storm may not be the same as the original audiences. Their feeling of pain and confusion Maybe just a weariness of like, this is hard. I feel like I've been paddling against the current for five years. I'm just tired. And maybe this wondering if the grass is greener on the other side. Those things probably aren't foreign to us. Not fully. And I don't know many believers who, who haven't lived in the faith for a long period of time, who haven't at least had the fleeting thought when things get hard, would life be easier another way? Maybe you don't hold on to it very long, but that just the wonder. Would it be better? Would it be easier? Would it be more filling to do something else? And, and this kind of uh, thought, it can range from a lament of just like, would it be better another way? Oh, this is hard. No, it wouldn't. To a more serious pondering of, I don't know if this Jesus stuff is worth it. This promise is so far in the distance. I don't know if I can grab a hold of it. Is it really going to be true? And like, this is really hard. And I don't even have a grasp on that. Like sometimes for people that the thought process goes much more deep down the hole. But it seems normal not to constantly doubt and be fickle. If you're always in that spot, you have a faith problem and an unbelief problem. But it's normal at some point to kind of get there and go, man, I just wonder. I wonder. That's what the author is writing to in the book. The pressure is up and the mind is panicking going, should I just go to another way? It might be easier for me. And what I appreciate about in this author's approach and his tactic is he concedes no ground at all. 
There'd be many who would be in his scenario and like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and talk them into not leaving Jesus and I'm gonna try and kind of work this out. Other people in their spot, I think would begin to, to, to compromise. Okay, guys, let's meet each other in the middle. We should be able to find some common ground, right? Maybe, maybe instead of fully leaving the Jesus stuff, let's just do less Jesus stuff. Let's talk about him less in the, in the marketplace and uh, in the middle of our, our neighborhoods. And maybe we'll just try and tone down the language and the belief and, and we'll have like missional communities and home groups and we'll pray there really in excitement. But when we go out in the world, we'll, we'll just kind of blend in. We'll not cause any issues and, and we'll just kind of do our own thing. Maybe we'll smooth out the tension of our faith that way. We'll tone it down. We'll still follow Jesus just kind of quietly. If we did a little time out right here, most of us wouldn't say it, but a ton of people already live that way. The author offers no such solution. He doesn't say turn down anything. He doesn't say smooth out any edges. He doubles down and pushes the readers in the opposite direction. Every time we think of running away, he says, no, run at him. Don't run away from him. Every time we look at another option, he goes, uh, Jesus is the only good option. And every time we consider if things would be easier, he goes, hey, you're looking at the moment of the storm. Look at eternity. Look at the beauty of the blessing that he has brought you. The constant push is dig in your heels. Don't turn away. Look at the finished work of Jesus. Look at him the whole time so you don't think, I know it's hard. No, I don't want you to back down at all, though. As the text opens, it starts with some details that we may overlook if not careful. Words matter. And these details remind us of the identity that we have in Christ. Uh, details that anchor a believer in the identity that they have, and this word is important, the identity that they have received, they have been given. The text says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. The one line is just jam-packed with statements of identity and personhood. But notice that before the command to behold or stare at Jesus is given, the passage reminds us, before you do that, let me just remind you of how God sees you because of what Jesus has done. Okay, before they ask, let me show you the beauty of what's been done. Think about that. For believers who might have been tired and anxious, for fathers who may have been scared and overwhelmed and hurting and feel helpless, even those who might be a little bit angry at God, like, I can't believe that you're doing this to me and this is the way my life is going. The author does not focus on our current feelings, emotions, or situation. He doesn't focus on that at all. He focuses on our eternal identity in Jesus. This is what matters. In who Jesus is and what Jesus has brought us, I want you to look here. He's not saying that your pain and your emotions don't matter. He's just saying, hey, they're a bad gauge for what you should do next. Look at Jesus. Look at what he has done. The first word of identity is holy. He doesn't say brothers, dudes, guys, gals. Holy brothers. He calls you holy if you're in Christ, and he calls me the same. The original audience, he calls them holy if they're in Christ as well. Holy is a hard word for us to understand and comprehend, mainly because it's used most often next to a curse word in our world. But holy is to be set apart. It's to be sacred. There's a sense of purity to it and otherness to things that are holy. So as I sat back and was thinking about it, my boys love Pokemon cards. Uh, who knows how long this 
will last, uh, hopefully not too much longer. He's paying attention. That was a check. Um, I'm joking. It's fine. Uh, they'll ask for Pokemon cards for their birthdays and for Christmas often. What do you want? want this, this, and this, and I really would like a couple Pokemon packs. All right, cool. So when they get a fresh pack, here's what they do. They go in our ottoman in our living room. They'll set the packs out. We'll get a pair of scissors, and they've got everything ready, and we'll chop off the top of the pack, and they'll pull them out very gently, and they'll begin to look at one after another after another. But when they see a card that's shiny or special or has high hit points, that, that card doesn't get put in the pile with the others. It, it gets set apart over to the side. And they'll normally like gasp and make some noise, right? And, and they'll take that card afterwards. And all the special ones that are not with the, the common ones, it'll get a sleeve and they'll put it gently in a sleeve. And they'll take a hard case and put it gently in the hard case. The other cards that are common, I don't even know if they exist anymore. They're at the bottom of something. They never get looked at. They, like, they're not inviting their friends over to be like, look what this common card is. Like, they don't care about that. But the case cards, it's distinct. To them, they are sacred. They're set apart. They're different. This is kind of loosely a metaphor for what holy means. God has set believers apart out of sheer grace. You're not common. You aren't considered dead in your sin. You aren't lost. You stand out. You are sacred to the heart of the Father. He treats you differently. Now you're pure and clean, and you're holy as the Lord is holy. He has imputed the holiness of Jesus on you. You are clean, and you're set apart for the service and purposes of God. I love that the author starts with this. People are looking over their shoulder. They're looking at going back to the way things used to to be, and the author is saying, you aren't that person anymore. You can't go back to being unholy. You you can't go back to being common. You're not that. You are set apart. You are holy. You are sacred to the Lord's. Like that, that person doesn't exist anymore. What do you think you're going back to? You're the Lord's. The second word is brothers. This is a word of identity again. You are family. You're family if you're in Christ. You are not on your own. You are not by yourself. This idea of just me and my faith, not in the Bible. You're in a family. You're a part of the family of Christ. You can't go back to the way things used to be. Jesus is your brother. He is your family and your co-laborers in Christ. Your fellow church members that you walk out your faith with, they are your family. You have received a familial identity when you came into the faith. Some people, I didn't sign up for that. Well, you didn't know what you're saying yes to then. The author is reminding you of that connection. We are not individuals. We're not solo projects. We're not lone rangers. We're the church the bride, the family of God. You're holy in your family. And the third word is you have a new state, or the third word is calling, right? So you have a new station as holy, a new association as family, and you have a new citizenship in your calling, a pursuit and a role, a calling in Jesus. This is part of what we talked about last week in our eternal hope. We're called towards a heavenly destination. This isn't your home. The storms here aren't your home. There's a, there's a heaven that is your future destination. That is your future hope. We will dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is not our homeland. This is not where our 
primary citizenship is. Again, this thinking is foolishness in the world. You're not a citizen here? Nope. Weirdo. That's what the word says. You're a sojourner. You're an alien here. You're a foreigner here. Can you love your country? Yep. Not more than your calling, though. So the author says you're holy, you're family, and you are a citizen of heaven. This is your imputed identity. And then he transitions to saying, right, this is who you are. So look at Jesus, consider him, behold him. And the next move is, and then he lists parts of Christ's identity. This progression is really important. Believers look at your identity, the one that Christ has given you, Remember that identity by remembering his identity. It says that he is an apostle and high priest. He is saying this, to remember who you are, you have to remember who he is. To have yourself tethered to what is real for you, you have to remember what is real about him. You see yourself in the relation to how much you see him. This is wildly unpopular in our culture. You realize that? The rise of the modern self, the ideology in our world says, if you want to know who you are, you on your own, by yourself, look inside yourself. That's how. Search your heart, your feelings, your wants, your desires. And in light of that information on your own, you declare who you are and what you will be. You're the master of your own domain, the captain of your identity, the mindset's prominent over the words, right, that we use. Be true to yourself. Oh, and you define yourself. Do what's right for you. Listen to your heart. Live out your truth. All of that declares you set your identity on your own and by yourself, and you live it out no matter what anybody says to you. That's what brave is. This mindset is utterly incompatible with Christianity. It literally doesn't work. It's foreign to it. One of the most beautiful aspects, because we want to make sure I'm not just like, oh, is he just teeing off on culture? No, no, no. One of the most beautiful aspects of uh, the gospel is that through Jesus, we get a new name. And we get a new heart and a new identity, and it doesn't come from us. We were dead in our sins. That's what our looking in got us. Without hope, not able to save ourselves in a spot of depravity and helplessness and lostness. And King Jesus comes out as a warrior and puts us together into a brand new being. Hear this. He doesn't come enhance what you already had going on. That is heresy. He makes you a brand new creation. It's not that he took your pieces and, 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 and superglues you back together. He makes you brand new. You are new through him. You are whole through him. Push that even further. Look at what sanctification is. Believers are given an identity outside of themselves, the identity of Jesus. They're given an identity that they didn't, uh, they didn't create and they didn't give themselves. And as they mature in their faith and they grow in that given identity, they begin to look more like Jesus. A believer's identity is not tethered to what's in their head and in their heart. It's not tethered to what they want in the moment or what they feel in the moment. It's tethered to the work of God, the Son, through the person of God, the Son, by the love and mercy of God, the Father, and God, the Spirit, is the one who even brings it to your doorstep. 
this idea of an identity brought to you. It seems repressive and archaic to the world. Hear me, it's good news to us, though. He says, we are not our own. We are the fathers if we are in Christ. He says who we are. The word of the one who created it all. Those same words define who we are. He declares what's true about you and what's true about me. And nobody, including the enemy or your condemning heart, can take that away from you. Nobody can undermine what Jesus says is true. This is amazing news for a believer. What does it hinge on? It's only not amazing news if you don't think God is good. If you think he's holding something back from you. If we, we kind of like sidebar and go to the side and look at the idea of us setting the identity by looking in ourselves. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. I am fickle. My desires change for all kinds of things. My pursuits change. How I see myself changes. No one is meaner to me than me. It is not good news if I set who I am. And setting who I am through what I want in the moment is a weird spot to be because it's going to be running all over the place. The anchor of who the Lord says you are grounds you. Even when your emotions go left and right and up and down, God goes, no, this is what's true of you. It is so much better for me, for God to define me, than me. It is not repressive. He's not holding back. It is the best news that I could ever have. Because when I begin to be swallowed in shame, he goes, no, this is who you are. But I feel this way and I did this. Yeah, yeah, but this is who you are. But this was really bad. Jesus paid for that too. This is who you are. It's a much, much better spot to be. Now let's go back to the identity of the characteristics of Christ that the author mentions. Remember, this is who you are. Look at Jesus and who he is to see who you are. Okay, looking back at the Jesus part. He says, Jesus is the apostle. Apostle means to be sent. That's it. When we think of apostles, we probably think of the 12 apostles. Well, Jesus was the original apostle. He was the one before the ones. He was the one who was sent as a missionary, sent out by the Father to earth. We learn this in John 20, out of the mouth of Jesus. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He was sent before anyone else was sent. Christ's identity is that of a sent one, of a missionary. Right? This is what we celebrate during Christmas time, the Advent. He didn't leave us alone in our storm and our chaos and, and our plight. He entered in. He came in as a, as a missionary. He moved into our situation and our context to love us and save us. If this was not a part of his identity, if he was not a missionary savior, if he said, now nah, forget those fools, I'm staying here. If this were not true about him that he was a missionary, then you would not have a new identity. If he wasn't sent, you would not be holy. If he was not sent, you would not have a family. And if he was not sent, you would not have a calling and a home in heaven later. See the links? See the author's angle in? You will only see yourself clearly when you look at Jesus first. And to the degree you behold him, you see yourself much more clear. He says Jesus is also a high priest. We've spent weeks dealing with this one, and the author of Hebrews is going to unpack this, really the whole book. The author will deal with it over and over and over. The basics of it are in the Old Testament, priests would sacrifice animals for the sins of the people, right? So they take another animal, a goat or something else, they grab it and they take it, cut it, bleed, blood, all that. And, and this is what atones for everything. But Jesus, the high priest, 
He doesn't sacrifice something else. He doesn't grab something else. Jesus stepped in and was sacrificed on the cross for our sin. He is the sacrificer and the sacrifice. He's the priest and the, and the blood. This is why we don't need priests over us anymore. This is why we don't go to priests. This is why uh, we don't call myself and the other elders priests and you come and go, what do I need to do for the atoning of my sin? Well, we got to kill something or like, no, Jesus is the better. He is the final priest. He is the final sacrifice that, that, that deals with it all. He's perfect already. More is not required. Again, another side note. This is part of what we celebrate when we come take communion. When you're beating yourself up, when you're looking at yourself in the mirror and going, I'm not enough, and I did it again, and all these other things, the, the, the perfect high priest comes and goes, hey, you don't, you don't need to sacrifice yourself anymore. I bled. Take my body. Take my blood. I died for that. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and help you curve that. Why are you trying to make another sacrifice? I am the sacrifice. We come, thank you. Right? We remind ourselves of what the Lord has done. The same point gets raised with this part of identity as the one before. If Christ were not the perfect high priest over us, then we would not be holy. Our sins would not be covered. We would not be set apart because sin would be in the way and we can't stop sinning. We would not have a family. You would not have a secure citizenship. Do you understand this? You, you, you would be worried all the time. Am I covered? Am I not covered? Am I covered? Do we, should we go sacrifice? Oh man, I did something else. It's 11 p.m. We better go kill something. No. Your destination is secure. You can stop. None of that would be true without him. Again, is in who Christ is and what he has done that we receive who we are. You don't look inside yourself. You don't create it. You are gifted it through who he is and what he's done. The author pivots and says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. That's God, the Father. Just as Moses was faithful to all in God's house, both were faithful. We're tempted again to pass by this and not make a note of it as if the words are just semantics or filler. But in those words, we find our greatest calling. The greatest honor that you could possibly grasp at the end for the Father to look at you and say you are faithful. This is what we see in the parable in Matthew 25. We hear someone hearing at the end, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's a huge thing. To run the race well, to finish well, to hear that from God at the end. When all else fades away, when money is gone and accolades are gone and desires are gone, in the end, hearing this line is the best thing a believer could have. Through Christ, we've been made holy and clean. Through Christ, we've been redeemed and adopted. Through the Holy Spirit, we've been held close and kept faithful. I don't know about you, but I want to hear that at the end. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We get in these weird areas because of grace that we, we think we don't have to fight back. Yes, you're saved by Christ and Christ alone. It's his blood alone. But there are a myriad of decisions in the storms when you're looking over your shoulder that you're going to know I'm going to keep looking at Jesus. That's part of what the faithful looks like. I want to continue looking at him. No, I don't ever think I saved myself. We have a ton of decisions, though. We've got to choose which way to look. And I continue to look in Jesus. I continue to believe his promises. So the author says both were faithful, which is a beautiful and huge deal. Both of them were not equal, though. 
and they're not on the same plane. Remember again, context. The Hebrews were thinking of abandoning Christ to go back to the old covenant, which means that they're going to transfer their identity back into the patriarch of Moses. They'd be throwing their identity into him and the faith that Moses delivered to them. That's why the author says, well, Jesus is counted as worthy of more glory than he is. I wouldn't do that. More than Moses, much more glory as the builder of the house has over the house. Moses led Israel and freed them from Egypt and their bondage of slavery. He was the, the one who received the, the commandments and the things then. He, he, he uh, led the people towards the, the promised land in this way through Moses. The faith of Israel was delivered to them. Right? When, he, when he brings back the Ten Commandments and the words of the Lord, he's delivering the faith to them. This is the house the, house the author is speaking of. It's the faith and the, the people handed down for generations. But that house, that faith, even that thing that Moses delivered, all of that's built by Jesus. All that Moses spoke of, all that he led Israel towards was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the, the house builder. Without the house builder, you have no house. Do you understand what he's getting at? There would be no faith. This is a warning. Moses was great. He was a faithful man to God. That's, it's a great thing to, to, to want to hear those same words over you. But he is not and is never meant to be the one that you tether your identity to. Christ is the cornerstone, the apostle. He is the high priest. Without him, uh, there would be no redemption. There would be no holiness. There would be no family. There would be no hope. There would be no calling. There would be no eternal home in heaven. And there would be no church. All of it is because of and through Jesus. Moses was a good servant. Jesus is the son of God whom the faith is built by. The aha moment here is the author saying, you can't leave Jesus behind and return to the old covenant and the law and sacrifices like before because all of those things were actually just pointing you back to Jesus. Even if you think you're going to go back to him, they're going to point you back to Jesus all over again. He's always been the way. He's always been the path. There is no other door. There's no other path. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. There's nothing else then what is through the Son of God to get to the Father and find redemption? The Son of God built the church and the people of God. You, you can't stay in the faith and leave the Son. He's the builder. He put it all together. It hinges all on him. If we look back at verses 5 and 6, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his, hear this, and we are his if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And we are his house, sorry. You know, that the church, the faith, we're part of that only if we hold to our confidence. Remember the context again, these were considering, these people were considering walking away, leaving the faith, and the author delivers a verse that would have been troubling to, to many of them, and I think it's probably troubling to, to even some of us in some ways. He says, those who hold fast their confidence and their boasting and their hope, those are the ones who are the house, who are the church, the people of God. Those are the redeemed. Those are the, the saved. This troubles some because they think, okay, is there salvation not of grace now because you're saying that there's a condition to it? And the point is not that there's a condition put on salvation. It's, it's simply to make this point. Christ will hold on to all that are his until the end. He will be faithful. Why? Because he's the high priest. 
those who are Christ will stay in the house as part of the house until the end. This house, again, says, again is referencing the faith, specifically the church body. The underlying message is that we can have doubts. We can have, we want to be really careful not to give an over-allotment. We can have short seasons of wandering away. But those who are Christ will never walk away and abandon the church. They won't stay away from the church in general or for long extended periods of time. They will not walk away from the family because Jesus built the house and they know they're a part of the family. They will hold fast even in the storm and they will boast in that hope saying this hurts and one day he'll wipe it all away. So this is hard to hear again for another reason as well. It's a hard text but a needed one. What have we seen happen at a, at a level that our generation hasn't seen it before? The last three to five years, somewhere in there, just depending on when you start it, deconstruction has run wild over the West. There's been a mass exodus out of the church, and many have, for a multitude of reasons, walked away from the church. They're done. They're out. And, and hear me, it's not like they left a specific church and that's the problem. They left church altogether. They're, they're, gonna, they're just going to do it on their own. This is the opposite of holding fast. This is the opposite of what the author calls us to do. Here's the warning. Don't leave the house and think you're a part of it. Don't do it. I, I, think, I think part of it's a defense mechanism because we, we've watched people that we love a ton walk away. And so we try and connect some dots to, to not believe that they're lost. And I think that leads us to not take this scripture seriously. Be careful about your close friends that you validate them walking away from the house. They can leave Redemption's Hill and they can leave their other churches. But if they leave all churches... and we undergird a confidence, and it's okay. I, I, I don't know that we can paint a picture that that's loving. This is a hard warning. Those are his who will persevere. They will not walk away. They will not leave. Those in the house are of the house. And those who've abandoned the house have just said, I don't want anything to do with that. Here's an interesting thing that we talked about in my MC uh, a couple weeks ago. Arminians and Calvinists. You ready for that? We're going to open that up. There are many things about salvation that they disagree on and fight over. Do you know what they agree on? The people that abandon the church aren't Christian. The Calvinists would say, hey, they were never saved. The Arminian would say that they decided to leave their salvation, but they actually both agree. Be careful about leaving the house and thinking it's fine, and be careful about your close friends and family members when you support their choice to leave the house instead of calling them to come back or to go to another church. Be careful. The question becomes, though, how in the world do we not leave the house? How do we not give up? How do we not turn around in a world that is so hard? What do we do? How do we hold fast in the storm? How do we remember who we are? How do we keep our eyes above the waves when they're crashing over and over and over? And the answer is simple. Look at Jesus. 
The only reason I opened up with that goofy story with the guy looking straight, just don't look down. Stare at him. There are those who are like, well, that just sounds legalistic. No, no, no. He's not saying stare at him or he'll smite you. Stare at him or you'll forget who he is, and when you forget who he is, you'll forget who you are. Stare at him. Behold him. See him. Don't forget what he has done. There's a message. Fight hard to fix your eyes on him and behold what is true of him and what is true of you. That sounds like a lot of work. It is. Anyone who says it isn't is probably trying to over-realize grace. It is hard. Stare at him, though. Lock eyes with him. Look at him. So the fears of the world and the pressure of the world do not swallow you like the storm. Here's the tension. Some hear that and just go, false. I don't need to do that. You told me about grace, just relying on Jesus. I don't need to look at him. I already relied on him. I relied on him eight years ago, that one time, right? There are some who just think, I, I, I don't need to do this because he's good. And if he's loving, he'll just take care of it. I don't need to look at him. You don't find that message in the Bible. And the second, maybe more troubling one for, for our house is what we'll call some really serious spiritual ADHD, unofficial diagnosis. For some, hearing this sermon, this 40-ish minutes, it's about all you can take. You got no more. 40 minutes of hearing of Jesus. It's about everything that you can take not to pull out your phone and check it. It's about everything you can take not to look at fantasy football or where you want to play golf or your dinner plans or what you've got going this week or to look at your calendar. About everything you can take to not get your fix of Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or just, I don't know what your thing is. But it's so hard in your heart to like 40 minutes, you're like, that's all I've got. There's a reality that the world that Jesus has made has overtaken our desires more than he has. We need to be really, really careful about that. So much so that this has happened to some of us that we just can't hardly look at him for very long. And when we do internally, we just kind of freak out. All the other things that we want to do and think we should do and think are better, they just come flooding into our mind. If you connect with that at all, I think the best thing that you could do is pray for the Holy Spirit to help you now. Spirit, help realign my heart to focus on the things from above and not the things of below. Help stir a desire for the presence and the person of Jesus. Help me to focus. Help me to see him is better. Stir my affections. They're just, they're, they're just dormant and they're, they're, they're not moving. And, and that's why I can't look at him for very long. So it just, I, I don't know. I just, stir it. Help me. The, the prayer of David, give me a new heart. My affections aren't good. I don't know how to change it. Pray the prayer. I need help. Here's the thing. I think he'll be really faithful to help you. Does that mean it'll take no effort afterwards? <laughs> I didn't say that. But the best thing that some of us might be able to do today is just ask for help. Man, my affections and my focus are off. I don't know what to do about it. I've, I've, I've tried for a couple months and I can't fix it. Ask for the comforter, the counselor to come and help show you the beauty of Jesus and rewire your heart. That's what he does.
Remember, again, Jesus told the disciples, hey, it's better for me to go away because the counselor can help you in ways that you're going to need. This might be one of the ways that you need. For maybe the others of us who aren't in this spiritual ADHD at this moment, I would say we all get there at some point. I'll just declare what the author has and ask the Holy Spirit to do its work. Friends, look at Jesus. Consider him. Stare at him. Set your eyes upon him to see who he is and what he has done and see yourself rightly. The storms will rage. The distractions will come. The world will lure you and try and get you to place your identity in other things in the world or in things inside yourself. And Jesus invites you, hey, just look at me. Lock eyes with me. Come all your heavy laden and burden. And when you're hurt, just look at me and I'll look at you and I'll help you. Fight like crazy to see him and not forget. This is the directive of the author for us to hear and lean into. There are just a world of simple choices that I think can help some of this. I talked to my wife maybe a, a couple months ago. I just noticed a period of time where my affections were off. I, just, my, I was distracted. And I just began to look at like, what I was listening to all the time. I love all kinds of music, really. Well, not all kinds, that's a lie. Uh, I, I began to just listen to country music all the time and listen to other podcasts all the time and searching YouTube videos all the time. And what I began to notice is just hearing the beauty of Jesus just even in songs wasn't happening, and it was jacking with my affections. One simple change. I just began to listen to way more worship music again. You know what happened? The affections were stirred. God was faithful and good. Look at what you're looking at. Consider what you're considering and understand that it has really big implications. He loves you. He wants to draw you near. He wants to solidify you to where you're not falling in all the storms that come at you. Ask the Spirit to help you in that today. Man, you guys can come back. I pray you just do some work in worship, asking for the Lord to help your affections if you need that. If your affections are doing great today, man, praise God for that. Thank him for that. That's a wonderful thing. We're not always in seasons of distraction. It's okay to say, hey, man, thank you. You're showing me such a clear picture of you lately, Jesus. Thank you. Continue to do that. You're good. We'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup and the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In light of this sermon and what we've talked about, every time you take, you're remembering the identity of Jesus. You're remembering what he's done. His blood was spilled. His body was broken. His promise is true. And you're just taking that in again, saying, God, will you remind me once again what you have done through Jesus? Man, I pray that your heart would be stirred at the table that it would be a worshipful place for you. Like there's moments where we're deeply reverent and think, and I think there's moments at the table where you just go, man, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for showing me who you are. Thank you for showing me who I am through you. I pray that your heart would be built up through the table today. Would you stand and pray with me? God, you are good and you're kind. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us. Spirit, we come and do your work. Show us Jesus in a fresh way. We need it. Let us behold 
the son, for the tensions in our heart that are just overly fixated on other things, would you help us see those things put back in their right place? It's hard to realize that even just neutral things out in the world can cause us not to consider you Christ. Help us see you clearly. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you came, that you didn't leave us alone, that you gave the perfect sacrifice, that we don't have to crush ourselves or beat ourselves. We just need to look at you. May we behold that clearly. Would you stir us towards you? Thank you for your kindness and mercy. We love you, God. Amen.